All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, I want to kick this off by telling you just a few of the things that are going on. Um, biggest announcement probably for us was the monograph that we wrote dropped this week. Um, it is, you can find it, you can buy it on the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapists website. Their web address is orthopt.org. Our monograph is part of an independent study course. So there are two other monographs within that independent study course. The title of the, the independent study course is Special Topics Optimizing Recovery. And within that, you've got our monograph, and then you have one on sleep, and you have one on nutrition. So nice little sampling there of some things that, that we as physical therapists can do to optimize people's recovery from injury and, and whatever else they're recovering from. Um, then want to say a big thank you to our hosts from this past weekend in San Diego and Long Island. Uh, down in San Diego, we had Sean McCune and PR and physical therapy. And out in Long Island, we have John Ebinger, Keith Levinson of St. Charles Hospital, their sports medicine arm. And then, of course, thank you to everyone that came to those courses. We really appreciate you coming out and listening to us yammer on about BFR for like eight and a half hours or whatever it ends up being. Um, speaking of courses, we have a bunch more coming up. Please shoot over to our website and click the Get Certified tab. And if you've been thinking about it, just come on. Let's let's do this. Let's get you trained up and, and practicing some BFR. Um, this in in two weeks will be in on the on September twenty sixth. We'll be in Dallas as well as Minneapolis. Both courses do have a bit of room. The Arkansas course unfortunately is sold. Well, I mean, fortunately it's sold out. But unfortunately, if you were hoping to get in, it's sold out. Uh, and then at the beginning of October on the third, we're in Atlanta, Georgia, and New Orleans, Louisiana. Both courses do have some space. And then getting into the middle of the month, we're in Tucson, Arizona, Chicago, Illinois. Bozeman, Montana, and San Antonio, Texas. So you can find those dates and everything on the website. Uh, lastly, if you have a topic that you would like us to cover or a question that you would like us to answer regarding BFR um, on our podcast, we would love to do that for you. Um, shoot it to us in a DM. Email it to us at Owens or info at owensrecoveryscience.com. Uh, and just put podcast question or podcast topic in the title. And if you are one of the lucky winners, if we actually use your question or your topic, we would love to send you a really sweet Owens Recovery Science Earn Your Deflate t-shirt. So please submit those because that's one of many ways to get a free t-shirt from us. Um, and, and, and I think that really kind of covers it. So we're going to kick this thing over to Jimmy McKay and let him really do a better intro than I could ever do. And then we'll talk about the paper. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, welcome back. So another Owens Recovery Science podcast, man, COVID and quarantine, it's, it's allowing us to actually get these, these out much more regularly. So that's, that's pretty nice. It was always hard to do podcasts when we were all flying in airplanes around the country. So um, we are back, though, to teaching courses. Uh, you heard in our intro from Kyle um, discussing some of the courses. Go to our website if you want to learn more about us, uh, owensrecoveryscience.com. 
We have uh, all of our podcasts on there, our blogs and our BFR certification courses are around the world now. And, and there's a lot of them are selling out because we have smaller numbers in them. Um, so if, if it is sold out and it's in your region, we do have wait lists on a bunch of them. And, and if people, if we do have people have to cancel for a lot more reasons nowadays, um, be sure and get on a wait list. Don't just give up on it. So anyways, what's up fellas? You already talked biomechanics today. Uh, always. Yeah. So we talked about this. We, Kyle, you've been to the center thing, Chef, right? You came down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ben's yeah. been there. We have probably the biggest and best, at least we did, we did it one time. I bet it still probably is biomechanics lab in the world. Um, and those fricking biome, biomechanics graphs, I, I, they just made my head spin. So Jason Wilkins, who ran our military performance lab and ran it, He'd be like, hey, man, I emailed you all those biomechanics graphs. You want to look them over before we meet, go to his patient. I was like, don't even waste your time, dude. I'm, I'm going to open it up, and, and I can barely tell what they mean. So we're not going to go deep into what everything means on the graph, but we do have today the first biomechanics paper that has looked at exercise with blood flow restriction, which, which is pretty cool. And, and we got some interesting kind of stuff out of it. So the, the title of the paper is Biomechanical Effects of BFR Training After ACL Reconstruction. Um, it's in medicine and science and sports and exercise. Came out a couple months ago, I think, or maybe even maybe even sooner than that. Scott Telfer um, is a lead author. It's they're all out of the University of Washington. Albert Gee, the the team surgeon up there, the orthopedic surgeon, is on this as well. They reached out to us early on just to kind of get some information about BFR. Um, they they use the Delphi units in this and kind of how you apply it. And they they told me they were going to do a biomech study. So. I, I, from that point, after that initial conversations, I never talked to them again. So I was always interested to see like, what were they actually studying? Cause they didn't have a randomized ACL trial going on with BFR. So I was trying to figure out what they were going to study. So this is actually trying to see, do, does it exercise with BFR? Is it safe or unsafe from a biomechanical standpoint, looking at kinetics and kinematics? And we'll go into what those terms mean for your clinical patient. Like, does the limb fatigue so fast um, that, that basically it becomes an unsafe exercise to do something functional? And so I guess let's go into kind of exactly what they did in this study. Um, one of you guys, Zach or Ben, Kyle, y'all want to take on like the methods and what the study actually looked at? Yeah, so uh, they had, it was a randomized trial. They basically had 20 healthy individuals and then 20 with um, an ACL reconstruction. Um, the, the ACL folks were between 12 to uh, 15 weeks out. And I think it, they tended to bias more towards the 12 week mark um, with their sample. Uh, and from there, what they did was they had individuals come in and just do a step up exercise either with or without BFR. And um, that consisted of a set of 30, three sets of 15 with 30 seconds in between. They did do, um, both groups did the exercise on the same day with and without BFR. They started, um, everybody did the free flow or without BFR first and then waited five minutes and then did the same step ups um, with BFR. The, the box was around like an eight inch box. Um, so from there, like you said, they collected um, uh, kinetics and then kinematics. And then they also, what was really interesting is they looked at rated, uh, rate of perceived exertion as well um, to see what was more difficult, which one, uh, which trial was more challenging. Um, load was the same, it was unloaded. 
in in each um, trial. Yeah, so. and and so eighty percent limb occlusion pressure. Um, basically, the healthies were to have a control. Um, they use that baseline without BFR um, first seventy five reps to just kind of see what the kinetics and kinematics were regular, and then BFR applied in both groups, healthies and ACLs and seeing does the kinetics and kinematics change. Okay, so then what's the difference in kinetics and kinematics? Now, a lot of people might not understand that. Yeah, so kinematics are just basically joint angles. It's the easiest way to think about it. Um, and then um, your kinetics are the forces that, that can be either um, internal or external that, that go into the movement. So external forces would be your ground reaction force, and then the internal forces are um, the forces that the muscle exerts to counteract that ground reaction force. And I always got it screwed up. So Jason said kinematics has an M in it, you dummy. So that is, it, it's measuring motion and that's it. So kinematics. That's a good way. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Still, if I didn't remember that, I would still get it screwed up. So kinematics is just looking at the changes in, in motion, but not the forces that are applied. And so from a, you know, ninja style, if you can get both of those, um, that, that's really valuable information because kinematics is going to tell you a lot about what's happening with the force, either from the ground or the force that's being applied, um, what these, what these moments are around the knee, ankle and hip, et cetera. So, so we got both of, both of those in there. So let me, let me go, I'll, I'll jump into the data then on this. So kinematic wise, and, and we've all seen people do this exercise in our labs or in the clinic, um, with, with BFR on. And you see them doing their little step ups. I, you know, I think it was out when I was at Kaiser in San Francisco. It was on a big box, and this poor girl, um, we had to have two people standing next to her so she could use their shoulders to try and get up on. I was like, yeah, it looks like it's a dumb exercise at this point. Um, so I'm not saying it's a dumb exercise, but we see people doing step ups with BFR, step up, step down, and and I, with my eyes, without a biomechanics lab, can say, yeah, it looks like there's there's moment angles that are definitely changing around the hip, the knee, and the ankle. And, and they did find that. So the kinematic or the motion data in both groups compared to when they didn't have the tourniquets on, when they were doing the step up or step down, there was a little change in external rotation of the tibia of about two degrees. So you did see that that external rotation of the tibia started to turn out. And, and again, repeating what the, the author's goal of the study was, was would this exercise become dangerous in a post-op ACL? If they start to externally rotate that foot, if they start to internally rotate that hip, that's what can put stress on the repair. So they wanted to see were these values worthy of being worried about. So both of them changed two degrees, but that was a pretty small effect size around 0.3. So that's, you know, something you might not even be able to pick up with your eye, something that might not even really matter that much. The hip, when they looked at that, internal rotation changed about four degrees. Um, they had more internal rotation by around four degrees in the BFR ACL group, not in the healthies. But again, a small effect size. So around 0.3 medium to smallish kind of effect size. I guess medium really, if you, if you look at the scale, but probably from a kinetic, kinematics, see I almost screwed it up, kinematic side. What do you guys think? Those numbers give you pause or anything like that? Two degrees external rotation of the, of the tibia, four degrees internal rotation of the hip. Didn't, yeah. didn't shock me, didn't worry me really, but I don't know what two degrees means either really. Yeah. Right. Uh, 
Well, and we'll get into it in the discussion. They, the authors are pretty much saying that, yeah, this is a nothing burger. So that's probably not that big of a deal. And it was during the concentric part of the step up, wasn't it? The, the two degrees, I believe. Uh, I think they said that like in the discussion. Yeah. Well, they measured concentric and eccentric on all those, but I do believe the effect sizes on those were only shown on the concentric part of the step up. Okay. So yeah, that's what the, the, Yeah. The internal rotation was on the step down. And I think yeah. step, step up was uh, the was tibial. Yeah. But I, I think, I think one of the, one of the things of it is too, is um, when, when you look at a, a two degree difference, you know, the measurement error on a goniometer is five degrees. Yeah. So even if you can detect that, I think you have to wonder and ask yourself, what is the, what is the true significance of that two degree difference or four degree difference even? Um, so, well, the, my eyes only have about a half a degree of, of yeah. variation in it. Cause you know, yeah. I've been a PT, you know, for over <laughs> years now. So <laughs> <laughs> I would pick that up just looking at it. You yeah. Just look and see you, it. That, that, you, you, uh, you have the, the, Google, the Google glasses. Um, yeah. uh, John, Johnny yeah, doesn't, yeah. Johnny doesn't need magic hands. He's got magic eyes. So. Johnny, the biomech guru. <laughs> it's going the other way. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely getting worse. I have to get new glasses because I can barely freaking read anymore. Um, okay. But then in the, kin the kinetics. So when we're looking at these, these moments around the ankle, the knee, the hip, that's, that's where we started to see some, some bigger changes here. So in the healthy subjects, um, we saw overall that they had a greater knee extension moment than the ACLR group. Now I'm not talking BFR, they just had a bigger knee extension moment. So you guys wanna, this is something that clinicians need to understand. There's, a, there's really good papers coming out showing that this knee extension moment's important. Um, so you guys wanna kinda go down that wormhole a little bit? Yeah, so your knee extension moment is basically the torque that's exerted on a knee from the quad. So it's, it's you know, um, and, and just generally speaking, a torque is just rotational force. Um, and so um, it, it's a measure that we use isokinetically or isometrically um, to assess knee extensor strength. Right. And, and it, most would, it would counteract a, an external knee flexion moment. That, that is correct. Yep. Right. right. Okay. Just and important. To, that's and how pretty much across the literature, we see ACLs three months, one year further, they have decreased knee extension moments. So they, they have this kind of pattern where they, they want to use either an ankle strategy or, or usually more of a hip strategy to take pressure off of that knee. Um, and, and so we see it, you know, these people walk around sometimes with this little flex knee post-op um, or you see it, you know, this new paper you sent, it was a really good one, Kyle, you put in those show notes, just in a squat. Um, bilateral squat, how much we see that an ACL patient will have a decreased knee extension moment and pick up more of an ankle moment or, or a hip moment. So our goal in rehab is we want to get our patients to have more of a knee extension moment post-op ACL or post-op knee surgery, right? Um, and that's the rub. How, how do we train that? So what they saw then Next is the decreased knee extension moment with BFR. So then when they measured BFR, it actually got much worse in the healthy group. So around a 70% drop, a big effect size, 1.7, and a 50% drop for the ACL group, a big effect size, again, 0.8. So with the tourniquet on, we saw that actually they got away from using their knee even more in both groups. 
the healthies had a bigger drop. And we discussed that, that we think the bigger drop was because they had more room to fall because they were using a lot more knee extension moment already, right? Any thoughts on y'all's end on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point. You, you know, if you're just kind of reading that and, you don't, and you're not thinking about it, you see that big drop and you're like, well, why did the healthies drop more? Because there was more room to move. They were higher up. There was more more space to fall through. So, right. Um, and so at the hip, we saw that there was an increased hip, hip uh, flexion moment when stepping up. Uh, effect size, again, was really big, 1.15, and a decreased varus moment when stepping down. So an effect size of 1.18 when you, when you got the tourniquets on there as well. So with BFR in healthies or with ACLs, patients don't show a lot of change in their motion, but they do show a pretty big change of, I, I'm getting away from, from using that knee. Now the authors go on and say, so Scott and, and his group, that's, that can be good because it's safe for the knee, right? So they're not, they're not just getting up there and kind of collapsing on, on the step up, going into this internal rotation and valgus, putting a lot of stress through the knee. In, in reality, they have less stress on the knee, but from a, efficacy from a, is, are we helping the problem? Well, no, we're probably making them avoid using the quad even more and, and go to the hip strategy. You guys agree with that statement? Yeah. And it, it was, you know, it was nice to see they, they had everyone doing this as a paced exercise. You know, they had a metronome going and a four second time intertention. So two second concentric, two second eccentric, you know, for me, I, I would imagine that during the BFR condition, there was probably a, a little more difficulty keeping that pace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely, you know, seems like you can, you can see the avoidance of, of the knee strategy, which is, is not really surprising. Right. Um, all, all these, you know, moment arm calculations confuse me, I think because it's in a, a Newton meter measurement, you know, the, that metric measurement doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I probably need to see more in a, a foot pounds. So that way I can make sense of it. Well, it, it confused me because it was math. So there was already that that, that started messing with me. And, and the, the, the graphs for some reason are blurry <laughs> preprint. So that made it, I, I can barely read them on a good day. And then I'm trying to read a blurry one, but so I guess the, the main point here is, is, and this was a good study because it's, it's telling us some information, but they had to start them at three months or further out post-op just because, you know, ethics and we're getting these ACL people in post-op and we're going to do this kind of biomech kind of pilot study. We would, a big problem of why we have these knee extension moments, we think is a, a lack of quad strength. Now there's, there's a, you know, probably an activation and a patterning and all this other sort of stuff but it's the lack of quad strength. You know, like I said, you know, you want to clean up a squat. If you give this person their quad back, it's amazing with my amazing eyes. And I can see like, wow, that, squ that squat looks really better. Um, but we've seen it in our biomech lab, you know, um, that, that these folks, it, just how much they would clear up if they got their strength back. So in a perfect world, in the right world, the way we do it, BFR would be started very quickly post-op ACL with controlled exercise, you know, maybe even the, you know, we're talking passive to, to slow down the catabolic pathway. Then you move into slow controlled exercise to keep the quad. And then by the point you're doing a step up type thing, we're hoping that you're not needing BFR. You've moved on to, I've graduated from this. I kept my quad, I'm good to go. And I can do this exercise with a more normal knee extension moment. You guys agree with that? 
Yeah. And, and so people are like, man, what's, what's kind of tip of the spear? Like if, if we're looking at, you know, these knee extension moments, cause that's something you can't see. You, you, you need an external device, like a biomech, like a force plate or something to tell you that information. So, you know, we have our paper that I, I, I ran it for, I forgot the name of the damn journal now, how technology is improving rehabilitation and, and Dustin and the guys with the U S Olympic team, you know, what they really wanted to point out was, you know, they use BFR a ton. They use it early. You know, you know obviously they, they've gone through our stuff, but then they do move into this second phase with their ACLs to use in force plates. And they, they wrote about that of how they try and control these knee moments by retraining the individuals using biofeedback with it um, to show them that, you know, you've got a quad, we, we fixed that problem, but now we just got to get over this pattern issue of you not wanting to, to have a knee extension moment. So that's, if you, if you have access to force plate type technology, that would be kind of tip of the spear moving into second phase ACL rehab. You give them the quad, then you get them into correcting their pattern. Then you start looking at more return to play, you know, rather than like, cool, three months, let's do a jump test. <laughs> it just kills me. A jump test. And we would see these, they, they, they don't have a knee extension moment. They have a hip strategy. What's a, a freaking jump test. It, 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 I'm like, you know, looking away because I'm, I'm just going to, I'm thinking there's going to just be ligaments on the floor by the time they're done with that test. But if they had strength and they had bilateral knee extension moments that were close, I think that's a great time to start looking at these, these more high end functional tests. And the, and the folks at STEM and Philippon, um, they presented EWI. They're really looking into this for return to play type of criteria. Um, they, they have a ton of work right now that hopefully guides us a little bit better. Yeah, I would say, Johnny, as far as like the, the hop test and that kind of thing, that, that's been pretty well documented recently that people do adopt a hip strategy and they're able to pass the hop test. Yeah. But they're not passing the hop test the, the same way uh, either side. But the, and you the, see how it. they're generating the forces. Yeah, different. They, they're flexing at their hip. You know, there's, right. there's, they're not going through the knee. They're leaning really far forward. And it's, it's terrible. Um, so, yeah, to say they got within 80%. Um, that, that, I don't think that's helping us at all. And, and, and so I think what's interesting from that other paper, Kyle, is, you know, when they were looking at post-op ACLs and this decreased knee extension moment with, with squatting, you know, it was that center of pressure that they really move into an anterior center of pressure when you measure the kinematics of it, that I'm sorry, the kinet, fuck, damn it, the kinetics of it, um, <laughs> that, that if, if, if you measure them, they are more anterior on the foot and they adopt this ankle strategy and they adopt a hip strategy. Cause when they go anterior, you're putting more stretch on the hip than on, on the, on the plantar flexor side. So that makes your body want to bias towards it. And if they just could shift them posterior, you go into a quad strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, the other you can't see that stuff either. Like you, you kind of have to measure it. I think I've already said this. I can. <laughs> oh my bad but yeah. but johnny you're the, not we don't all have person. your eyes yeah. the, the, you are what is it uh, you got all kind of different nicknames iron man maybe that yeah. would fit into that cool dude that yeah. ability that cool you guy, have yeah. Yeah. keep them coming keep them coming fellas overall cool dude yeah. really like interesting new cool dude we cannot <laughs> y'all don't care what my daughters and my wife call me but that's right <laughs> uh, yeah uh 
But one of the things, and not to, to go down the rabbit hole too far on, on a discussion that I know we all have internally of, you know, this, this paper kind of showing that those closed chain functional exercises for quad strength may not be the most effective strategy, especially with something like BFR that is so fatiguing, you know, maybe a little bit more support for, for isolating that quad a, a little bit more, especially early on. Yeah. I think it's so puzzling how we choose exercises sometimes. So like, I think if you ask most anybody in the rehab world, how do you get the bicep stronger? They, they go, they tell you, Oh, bicep curl, or how do you get the tricep stronger? Oh, I do like a tricep extension. They don't say, Oh, I do seated rows or lat pulls or bench press. But if you ask someone in the rehab world, how do you get the quad stronger? It's like, um, Oh, squat. It's functional. I'm yep. like, I, when was quad strength, when did quad strength become not functional? Um, and why would we strengthen the quad muscle differently than we strengthen any other muscle in the human body? And, and I think that the, the Sigward paper that you were referencing, Johnny, that's from, that's out of USC, Sue Sigward yeah, yeah. and Matt Chang um, have published, it looks like two, I don't know if this one is a preprint that we grabbed or if it's yeah. actually published right now. Um, but um, those are really good papers just showing that, we people after ACL reconstruction avoid using the involved limb. They, you cannot see it. It's not something you can pick up with the, the naked eye. Um, and, and they don't, they're able to correct it. Like the one paper, the first paper they published showed if you actually gave them like an, uh, some external feedback where they could see their distribution of weight bearing, they were able to correct it. So they, they actually had the capacity but they were avoiding using that limb, which is very interesting and really kind of feeds to the, the force plate conversation of, you know, you really might need to be able to physically show this person real time how they're, they're doing this um, so that they can work at correcting it. Well, we did it. We, we had that capability. We had TV screens out with our force plates and, and we even took it where we had force plates in the treadmills with TV screens and we could change impact transients. Now, we, we, I don't know if we were able to say it was lasting. We were doing a bunch of stuff with that lady from Harvard. She was a barefoot running lady. I'm blanking on her name now. Um, but, you know, just that visual feedback was, was amazing how you could change that. So that's where, yeah, you get to it. You know, it's the more credence to don't do the damn clown exercises. Like they're already shifting off their knee. Now you're like, well, I need to be functional and I'm going to do a squat or something and, and put a bunch of bands on them and throw a ball out and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, that's not cleaning it up. <laughs> if anything, it's probably making it worse where they're going more anterior, get more ankle strategy, more hip strategy. And, and your little Instagram video is, is a joke. So, um, and that really fits with just like motor learning principles and things like that. External cues being far superior than and internal cues that, I mean, if you look at sports performance stuff, I kind of nerd out on baseball stuff. That's where all the launch angle things and the exit velocity stuff come from is like you get instantaneous feedback of what you did. Wasn't really exactly what you wanted. And then you try to just change that thing. I can tell you what it doesn't work with is it does not work with a golf game. It's garbage. Cause I, at no point at any time swinging a golf club and that ball just, shooting right have i been able to fix that so it doesn't always work (laughs) there's some subtleties to the correction that's why i gave up golf nothing nothing works in that damn game oh god y'all just haven't done it the right way oh boy i'm changing i'm tweaking my grip i'm working on some things i'm gonna get it yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna figure it out i'm determined when i and i 
again, PTs, ATs, we, you know, we all need to start thinking more physiologically, but then when people are like, well, just go to unilateral, let's just do unilateral work. And, and I, I can tell you how many times we've had people and, and they're doing a step down. I'm, I'm sitting there looking at it and the patient, it's all flexion the flexion pattern. Yep. Yeah. Flexion, flexion, flexion. And you're not being functional still. They're avoiding it. You're just building the bad pattern. So when they go play sport, they're going yeah. into a flexion pattern, their knees stuck at around 30 degrees and, and they get this internal rotation, valgus, boom, it goes again. You've got to, you got to yeah. fix that. that. 30 degrees is the vulnerable spot. I know. That's where I know. You don't He's, want them to be. Watch yeah. them do it. And yeah. so we got, you know, you got to clean up that knee extension moment. And everyone's like, well, I don't got a force play. Well, keep their quad. That made me lose my, lose my words, man. Keep their quad and it'll, I swear to God, I've seen it a bazillion times because we would have the failures all come to center for the intrepid. We would get them on BFR or, or a program that would get their quad strength back. And in the biomechanics lab, it's like, yeah, cool. They cleaned it up by getting the quad back, at least help. Maybe didn't do it a hundred percent. But that's at least the first thing you can do as a PT is choose your exercises right. In our world, stop the loss of muscle early with BFR, get BFR on with exercise, increase muscle protein synthesis, all these other things. Keep the quad. You're already ahead of the game. Then you can start working on that knee extension moment. You know what I was? I just did. I did my soapbox step up and step down just then. Yeah, you were you were rolling. That was awesome. I've had four cups of coffee already. It's Monday morning, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little tired. <laughs> What else, man? You guys have any other thoughts? I guess one thing interesting to point out, I'm, my wife told me I'm really bad at this. I ask people if they have any questions or anything, and I just keep on talking. So um, I don't know if y'all know, have y'all noticed that? I, I've noticed that. It, yeah. it just makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, never. No. Well, one thing cool. So um, they do have funding up there. Uh, Albert Gee has been, you know, he's been wanting to do a, a, an ACL trial. I think they've already got, got it going. But the APTA did fund uh, some of their, their therapists in their, in their uh, schoolhouse there, and, and they're going to start a randomized trial. But they asked the subjects, the 20 ACL subjects, after they were done with the BFR, hey, if we did a randomized trial with this, would you be willing to do this BFR as an experiment? And 19 of the 20 said, yeah, I, I, hell yeah, let's do it. There was one wuss. Um, who, who just wussed out on it. I'm not sure what that person's problem was, <laughs> but that was a nice setup and it shows, you know, people bought into the intervention. It also helps clear them with their IRB ethics. You know, they can say, we already did a pilot of this and 95% of the subjects said that they would enroll in a trial using BFR. So we want to point that out. And I think we pointed out the rate of Brazil of exertion was harder with BFR, which was kind of a no duh, but, but it's good they, they measured that. So. Anything else you guys can think of? Kinetics, kinematics, knee extension moments. I think go to our How Technology is Improving Physical Therapy paper. There's a nice little just short blurbs of how the Olympic guys are using it with a, with a little case example. And then those papers that you put out, Kyle, I think we should definitely put them in the, in the notes for people to see. Yeah, I'll put them in the notes. And there's there's some quotes, you know, that from those that were really good. Like that one, Johnny, you sent this morning. I thought was was great. Um, that's from the the new the pre proof that we had. Um, basically, said talking about like um, a squat type movement um, that the inability to detect altered knee joint loading during that fun fundamental rehab exercise limits clinicians' ability to address it. So the fact that you can't see it. Um, 
factors in. Cause if you think about, well, how are you typically just like a normal day in clinic, you're kind of watching people move and you're going, ah, it looks like maybe, you know, they're pretty good at this now. Maybe we need to sort of change it up. Um, and it, and it kind of pushes us back to, you need to really have points in the process where you're measuring things or, or movements that kind of anchor what you're doing and inform when you think maybe, um, you can, you can progress things. You know, Luke showed it in his ACL paper. They saw that big jump in perceived exertion and effort when, they actually measured their 10 RM and they prescribed the load they were using based off of that measurement, not based off of, did you complete the 75 reps? Oh, yeah. we're going to go up 10%. So um, I think, you know, we, while we're pretty good at seeing things, um, we need to be better at measuring things. Yeah. And I know it's true for me for sure. So. Or using the data out there. If you can't measure it because you don't have force plates, um, know that that's what the data says, you know, that when you have an ACL in that new paper, um, they went 1.7 times percent higher towards a hip strategy and 1.8 times higher towards an ankle strategy on the surgical side. So let's, let's talk about that. So let me, I'll just throw this at Zach. Zach, let's say you've got somebody doing a step up in clinic, right? And you know this, all right. You know, they're going to kind of avoid their quad what would you do with regard to the exercise task to, to make them use that quad? How, how would you go about doing that? Yeah. So you can cue them um, either verbally or tactilely, or one of the things that, that I'll see is if, if you try that and it doesn't work and they just can't get it then I, I regress it to a leg press um, that way I can modify the weight even more um, and then really kind of reduce the constraints of the movement and make it, um, you know, it's a similar closed chain movement, but just reduce the constraints even more than what they're, uh, than, than what they're doing. Um, you can also, cause with that approach, you can adjust the seat position, um, increase knee flexion. So they go deeper into the movement, things like that is, is typically been my approach. But also, yeah. like you said, measuring. So if you measure and their quad strength is good, then, you know, you've got probably more of a cueing situation and trying to retrain them to get into that, you know, uh, posterior position on the foot where they're using more quad and getting into a deeper hip flexion. But yeah. if you measure them and they're weak and they're quad, then don't fucking waste. I'm sorry. Sorry, Tom. Don't freaking waste your time um, with it. Fix that. And then right. we're figuring out that functional pattern. Yeah. I think one of the, the, the other thing too, to go with that is I always look at, um, you know, what is my goal with the treatment? If my goal with the treatment is to increase strength, like what is, what am I trying to increase strength with? If it's, a, if it's the quad specifically, I'll put, I'll bias that exercise and I'll put that exercise first and then move to, uh, the compound movement second. Um, it's a little bit different of a mentality compared to like what, you know, strength and conditioning and power lifters would do things like that. But if we know coming off of an injury that we have one muscle group that is um, weak or, you know, most involved, I want to bias that muscle group and strengthen it when it's the freshest versus pre-fatiguing it with a compound movement and then not, and me not being able to maximize the strengthening aspect when I can bias that muscle group. 
Something we use a lot, like when you could obviously see it or the biomech lab sent us any information, you know, that these guys really have a hip strategy. They're not using any knee extension moment. You remember, Ben, we had that big star pattern um, on, on the ground. It was basically from like know, a star excursion balance. Yeah. Yeah. So we would just have them use sliders and they would slide yep. lateral and slide posterior and they would just they would we would have a little cone set up and they would try and just push a little further while we're making sure that they kind of sat back into the hip and get in that long stretch on the quad, you know, hopefully getting the, the brain to kind of bias it. So I, I like that when it seemed to help really clean that pattern up. And when they got good at it, then we would stop sliding and they would start stepping into it. And, and then they could move into unilateral. So I, I kind of love that progression. Yeah. Yeah. We would, we would, I would, um, play with the task a lot. Like, I mean, some things to try to force people to, flex that knee i'd stick a foam roller just to the end of their toe and like you got to get your knee to the toe when you're doing like a step down or something and then you know and thinking about the center of pressure i think if you had a stable box an easy thing to do would be to move their forefoot off of the box so yeah. you have to load through the heel and you got to try to get your knee to the foam roll now you probably don't want that box to be very high to start because mm -hmm. um, people are going to have a hard time doing it. But I, it kind of goes to like, we've all got different strategies of what we would call constraining the environment, um, which provides an external cue, something that the patient gets immediate feedback on, and they can develop a strategy for getting there. But you're basically forcing them to use the muscle groups that you want. Yeah. Just yeah. make sure you've progressed it right. You know, again, I exactly. like yes. our pattern and then move into the, to the unilateral. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of having the foam roll and, and making sure that their knee translates forward to the foam roll or doing some sort of, you know, heel elevation just to kind of force that, you know, additional force through the heel and the movement forward. And you got to worry about the, the step up. You got to worry about the contralateral too, you know, because mm -hmm. people, if they're weak, they'll have a tendency to kind of vault. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we would do things like make them dorsiflex or just touch the heel down at some point as they're getting better. And the authors in this paper speculated they went hip strategy and they also uh -huh. vaulting using the contralateral. Lift. Yeah. Right. That's what we see. Which I couldn't, because they yeah. had a force plate under the contralateral limb. Right? I, I thought that was, yeah. I, I didn't understand why two, they didn't just two force plates, look right? at that yeah. <laughs> and tell us. Yeah, I was puzzled yeah. by that. Sometimes yeah, data they over. They didn't uh, put in the, uh, they had reflective markers down to the foot as well, but they didn't really kind of, you know, speculate on the use of an ankle strategy too, too much either. Yeah, um, But I, I have Maybe a tendency. Maybe going to do yeah, I have a, I, I just have a hunch. I mean, that's like the most common cheats that people do is they, you know, get a little bit of knee flexion and push off um, with the plantar flexors or push off and or push off with the opposite side. Um, and I think, you know, taking a, if you take a look at, you know, the methods or the results of that, and it's, you know, like Kyle, we were talking in that email back and forth this morning about how you can have no, no difference in the kinematics. So the joint angles all look the same, but you have this difference in forces. Um, you know, the, the easiest explanation is they're, they're cheating by either pushing off at a different joint or they're, you know, pushing off on the contralateral side. Cool. Yeah, that still puzzles me. I know, I know you said there's ways to figure that out, but I'm like, I just don't know how the kinematics yeah. can be the same, but the kinetics are, are, are different, but massively different. Yeah. Yeah. You have, yeah right. 
So that's like the, um, the SIGWORD paper um, from, in the JOSPT from two years ago in 2018. What they did was they found it was roughly 62% of the variance, I want to say, was explained by contralateral, the contralateral side. And then yeah. um, looking at the internal or the, the moments on, the, on that leg, roughly 23% of that was explained by a hip strategy. So all in all equals 85% of the variance. Now that does leave, you know, 15% to be explained by other variables, but um, yeah, the, the majority of it is coming from the forces. And then, you know, the other, just to kind of circle back with the whole jumping thing, you know, all the emphasis with jumping is on 80% or 90% of the contralateral side, but no one ever tears their ACL while they're actually doing a concentric jump, you know, it's always the landing. That's the biggest issue. And we just kind of always, how how do you measure that? You know, what do you use on your jump test, you know, to measure the issues that someone has with tolerating the forces from landing? It would be interesting to see if you were, you were measuring just that Zach, like if people were measuring the landing on a force plate and see, and are they, how does that weight get uh, distributed? would be kind of interesting to kind of compare hop tests that way. Cause you're right. I don't think anyone's done that. There's a research idea for somebody out there. If when you watch it, so, the ground reaction looks really hot. It's, it's, yeah. It's way different. Yeah. You know, and, and so I'm imagining the ground reaction forces would just spike up. Yeah. I will say too, um, we'll probably get some interesting data because Chris Fry and Brian Norens, ACL trial that's ongoing right now, they're going to have biomechanical um, data. So they're doing BFR in the early phases, post-op ACL, and then they're going to be measuring these knee moments um, after you've done the intervention. So whenever that study gets done, hopefully we'll have that data. And I I don't know, um, we haven't talked to the the University of Washington people in a while, Kyle, but I don't know if they're going to have some biomech data in that as well once they start the trial. Yeah, I don't remember. I I don't know. I think Telfer, you know, he, he runs that lab up there, it sounds like. So I'm sure if he's involved, they're going to want to get some of this. Get something. Cool. All right, well, good stuff. Any closing thoughts? I would say if, if people, like we kind of talked around those three different studies, Sue Sigurd actually came on um, PT Inquest a while back. Um, I can put that link in the in the show notes if people want to hear more about that study because it was an interesting study. And she, I don't think she's doing ACL study day this year, but she did it last year and kind of talked around that. Um, so pretty, pretty cool work coming out of USC. So we should kind of shout them out. Yeah. Well, they um, can move our, move our units over from what's his name's lab to her lab since yeah. that study is like taking so damn long to get done. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right, fellas, that's good stuff. I'm glad we, we cleared up kinetics and kinematics and that my eyes are amazing. So um, we, we hit everything I wanted to hit today. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PCs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.